You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual Elizabeth Nolan Brown, writing at Reason.com, sounded the alarm on March 7th, letting us know that a federal court, a federal judge, had ruled that Americans do not have necessarily a constitutional right to engage in consensual BDSM activities because, quoting from the decision, sexual activity that involves binding and gagging or the use of physical force, such as spanking or choking, poses certain inherent risks to personal safety Thus, Brown writes, officials could constitutionally ban or regulate such activity in the interest of, quote, the protection of vulnerable persons, the court held. This freaked a lot of people out, myself included. I quoted Elizabeth Nolan Brown, whose writing I like very much, in Savage Love last week and observed that in 2003, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that Americans have a constitutional right to get their asses fucked But one day soon, we may be asking the Supreme Court to rule whether Americans have a constitutional right to get their asses spanked. The judge's reasoning is pretty crazy when you consider all the other things that Americans do that have built-in health risks. Also for vulnerable persons. Put a vulnerable person on a snowboard and you send them down a mountain that they're not ready for or skilled enough to ride, they're going to slam into a tree and die. Pregnancy comes bundled with serious and significant health risks for the person who happens to be pregnant. And yet, we believe people have a constitutional right basically to get pregnant if they wish to get pregnant. And of course, the idea that people are somehow infinitely more vulnerable if you add a spanking to sex is a little crazy. People can be exploited. Vulnerable people can be taken advantage of and are taken advantage of every day in sexual circumstances and situations that are perfectly vanilla. It is possible to have exploitative, abusive sex in the missionary position with adult opposite sex partners who happen to be married to each other. That can be coercive and abusive, even if there are no props or costumes or handprints on people's bottoms. But luckily enough for all the kinksters out there who can hear the sound of my voice right now, we don't have anything to worry about. Our panic was premature. The National Coalition for Sexual Freedom issued a statement on the George Mason University case letting us all know that Judge T.S. Ellis III, who issued this opinion in John Doe versus George Mason University, was just vamping, was just opining, was just offering his personal observations and thoughts about BDSM, and it wasn't binding, ironically enough, this chunk of his decision. Writes Susan Wright at NCSF, The judge noted that Mr. Doe had argued earlier in the case, but not for purposes of the decision that he had a constitutional right to practice BDSM. Then, without any pretense of issuing any order on the issue, the judge gave vent to his own views on BDSM and Lawrence v. Texas, which was the Supreme Court decision that legalized sodomy between consenting adults. NCSF regrets that Judge Ellis felt it necessary to articulate his dead-wrong view of Lawrence – Susan Wright continues, this is but one more example of a judge giving expression to his own moralistic and uninformed displeasure concerning BDSM, but it is entirely what lawyers call dictum, which is legalese for bullshit, creates no precedent and does not even have any effect on this particular case. So all of us who are in a panic reading about this decision, no need to panic. They are not coming for our whips and our chains.
Coming up on the Magnum today, Dr. Debbie Herbenick from Indiana University and the Kinsey Institute joins us to talk about anxiety-induced orgasms, actually a thing, and tons of your questions, tons of your calls, and tons of your comments all on today's show. Hi, Dan. I am a 26-year-old cis straight guy living in the Mid-Atlantic, and I'm calling with a question related to oral sex. Like I said, I am straight, but anytime I've hooked up with a partner, almost every single time, I pretty much always go down on my partners. Uh, It's something I enjoy and I'm good at. And I would say probably a little over half the time, maybe like 60% of the time, it's the method I use uh, to get my partner off. Um, And I try to be very considerate and always make sure my partner does get off and has a good time. Uh, But my question is this. I recently started seeing a trans woman who I like very much. She's cute. She's funny. She's nice. Very good in bed. Very good to hang out with. But I really don't enjoy sucking dick. She has a, a penis, which is nothing that bothers me. I'm attracted to her naked or clothed or what have you. Um, and she hasn't really expressed any innate desire for me to go down on her yet. We've only hooked up a few times. Um, and I do always still make sure she gets off. And as far as she has verbalized that in our communication, she really enjoys the sex we have had. But I've tried it a little bit, and it's something I've tried experimenting with in the past with uh, a friend of mine once, and I've just learned that I do not enjoy sucking penis, essentially. So is this something that I should keep in mind? Is this something that is shitty of me or innately transphobic? Like, is this no point in something I should just suck up and try to make myself do because I want to be GGG and good to my partner? Or is this something I should ever bring up with her? Like I, I know that she's very open and communicative about her own, the process of her transitioning and she's been more than happy to talk to me about it, but I also don't want to bring something up that could be potentially, you know, hurtfully here. That is some varsity level, world-class, progressive hand-wringing you're doing there, and I commend you. The person you need to wring your hands in front of, audibly, you need to say these things that you've said to me, uh, are the woman that you're sleeping with. You need to talk to her about how she feels about this. Different trans women have different feelings about how their sometimes potentially cisgendered straight male partners interact with their genitalia. There are some trans women who feel, and I hate to jump in here and speak for trans women, but we don't have a trans woman guest lined up today to speak for herself. But I have spoken in the past with some trans women who feel it is really imperative of their partners to love and appreciate and interact with and suck on their genitalia, whatever form it takes, right? So this woman may feel that you avoiding sucking her penis is a kind of rejection or negation of her and she may be wounded by it or she may not be wounded by it because there are other trans women out there that I have spoken with and heard from in the past who to have a sex partner, particularly a male and straight sex partner, particularly a cis male straight sex partner, interact with or suck on their penis can make them feel as if he's not there for her or he doesn't see her as a woman or he's there for the dick and wants a dick attached to something that presents female otherwise because he's a cockhound. And so you got to talk to her is what I'm saying. Cutting to the chase. You got to talk to the woman that you're sleeping with. Could be that you sucking your dick, you not sucking your dick doesn't have any issues around gender dysphoria or how she's perceived or how she feels about you. Maybe she just doesn't like having her dick sucked or maybe she's indifferent to having her dick sucked and prefers to get off in other ways. And your block here around putting penises in your mouth 
doesn't matter her at all, doesn't wound her at all, doesn't give her any fifis whatsoever. But only she has the answer to that question, not me. And I would encourage you to go ask her about it. That said, you are not required to suck on penises to be a trans ally, whoever those penises are attached to. You are allowed to have preferences when it comes to genitalia and the different forms and shapes that they take and the different places you can put them. Hey, Dan. I was with a guy for three years. Kinky fulfilled all my like bondage needs and everything. And then that ended after the engagement was over. And uh, I met a new guy just this past couple of weeks. And it's been about like four to six months since we broke up from the engagement. And he is like a late bloomer, has no idea what he's doing. I don't know how I've never coached anyone into like doing the things that I like. I brought up a paddle and he seemed to enjoy that. Texted me and told me that he thought it was cool. And then I was like, eek, sorry about that out. I don't know. He's just like really shy and he doesn't text well. And that's really annoying. Like I'm not like a obsessive texter, but I mean, text me back. When I text you, especially if it's like something sexual and then it comes back like 45 minutes to like three hours later, not really a turn on. I don't know. How do I make a shy guy into the guy that I want because he's so hot? Hmm. How do you get this guy who's so hot to behave in the ways that your previous lover behaved how do you induce those behaviors? How do you get him to sex you right back? How do you get him to tie you up the way you like to be tied up? You ask him to do those things for him. And then if he can't do those things for you, you break up with him. Some people need to be drawn out. Some people need to be unlocked. Some people need a little bit of encouragement to be as sexual as they're capable of being and that they really want to be. And some people really do need that first lover who comes along and you say he's inexperienced. So invest the time. Some people need that first lover who comes along and gives them permission and helps them find their way past the blocks that a sex negative culture or a religious upbringing can put in someone's path. So he may be longing to sex you back. He may be filled with kinky desires that he longs to express. But on some level, he worries that despite your encouragement, you don't mean it or despite your encouragement that if he really lets loose, he's going to scare you off or spook you. And so he's repressed. He's holding it all in. He's holding back. Even though you're inviting him to, to, to let it out, he's holding back for fear of rejection, which can be an irrational fear. So what do you do? You do your due diligence or your screw diligence. You invest the time in drawing him out. You encourage him to be two things. Selfishly, you encourage him to be the person you would like him to be, the kind of partner you would like to have. But you then also encourage him concurrently to be who he is. And it may be in the end that who he is is not the person that you would like him to be or the partner that you need to have. And at a certain point, you're going to run that to ground. At a certain point, you're going to figure that out. That despite all of your encouragement, despite all of your drawing out, despite being very clear about your needs, he's incapable of meeting them, not because he's blocked, not because he's sexually repressed, not because he had a crazy religious upbringing, but because he's not that person, because his desires don't match, don't align with your desires, because he's never going to be the kind of person who sexes you like crazy, because he's not that kind of sexual person, the kind of sexual person that you want and need to have in your life. And at that point, you say, huh, 
looks like we are sexually incompatible and we might want to part now as friends rather than continuing to try to get sexy blood out of a sexless turnip. But again, you said he's sexually inexperienced. So you are not wasting your time right now trying to draw him out, trying to open up. You are doing God's work in trying to draw him out and trying to open him up. But after you do that work, if he doesn't open, if he can't be drawn out, then you say goodbye. Hey, Dan, 30-year-old gay dude here. Like many Americans know, a potential Donald fucking Trump presidency has me living in a constant state of dread. Um, As I sit here calling you, Trump has won yet another primary. My question and concerns, how to deal with a family member who has decided to get on the Trump train? My father, while socially liberal and fully supportive who I am as a gay man with a long-term boyfriend, is a card-carrying fiscal Republican who's not only been on a steady diet of Fox News and Limbaugh for years, but has just recently revealed to me that he is a Trump supporter. This is thoroughly depressing to me for many reasons, and I'm trying to figure out the most effective way to get him to at least reconsider his vote before November. My first strategy was to pummel him with links from enlightened people on both sides of the aisle who have written at length about how disastrous a Trump presidency would be, but I feel these articles would fall on deaf ears if he would read them at all. I don't think I'm going to win any battles arguing about Trump being disturbingly inexperienced or bad for the economy or foreign policy, but above all else, I feel my dad voting for Trump or Cruz is a vote against me. From what I've read, Trump is assuring his super religious supporters, he will appoint conservative judges to the Supreme Court. He said he's against marriage equality and would work to reverse it. Whether or not he would actually do that, I don't know. But we can all probably agree a Trump presidency wouldn't advance the LGBTQ cause in any way. So I want to tell my dad I find it appalling he would support a candidate that wants to take rights away from his own son, but I don't know the best way to do it. I love my father. He's been incredibly supportive to me throughout my life. So threatening to not come home for Christmas or something like that seems petty. I guess my ultimate question for you is, what is the most effective way you think I can make this point to him? I realize it might be a futile effort, but I want to at least try. I remember in 2004, sitting in the front seat of a car that my father was driving and we were talking about the election, and he was planning to vote for George W. Bush to not reelect George W. Bush, but to elect George W. Bush because George W. Bush did not win the election in 2000. He stole it. 2004, the only election for president that George Bush ever won. And my father was planning to vote for him and we were getting into a little bit of an argument about it. And my son was sitting in the back seat, my son who was then still a toddler. And he piped up with George Bush is a weasel, which is something that my husband had trained him to say whenever George W. Bush's name was spoken aloud. And my father said, George W. Bush, not a weasel. And my, and it just got ugly. I, I'm going to skip to the chase. It just got ugly in that car. And it ended with my father explaining or attempting to explain to us very patiently that George W. Bush personally didn't have anything against gay people. He was just pandering to the GOP base, which has a lot, has something against gay people. And not just gay people. Of course, the GOP base seems to have something against everyone who's not a part of the GOP base. 
And I explained to my dad very patiently that whether George W. Bush was punching me in the nose and punching my husband in the nose and punching our family in the nose because he hated us or he just wanted to impress people who hated us, we were still being punched in the face and it still hurt. And whether George Bush broke my nose politically because he meant it or because he didn't mean it didn't matter. Still had a fucking broken nose. That was 2004. That was the last conversation my father and I, who I love very much and talk to regularly, last conversation we had about presidential politics because he is who he is and I am who I am and the family is what the family is and there are some places you just don't go. So my advice to you is to do with your dad what I have done with my dad and I think my other siblings have done with dad, which is just we don't talk about this shit because it's ugly if we attempt to talk about it because it interferes with our ability to be in relationship, to stay in contact if we just focus on these explosive and raw national political campaigns. Donald Trump is an asshole. People who are fiscal conservatives and socially liberal should be Democrats because the economy does better under Democrats than it does under Republicans. Republicans tank economies. Democrats rescue them. If you are a fiscal conservative and a social liberal, you are or should be a Democrat. But people are masses of contradictions. And you can feel, and I say this as the son of a Fox News watching Republican voting, although he describes himself as an independent, Republican voting, consistently Republican voting, independent, you can feel responsible. And you do, as I used to. You feel responsible for trying to talk sense to your conservative parent, to try to talk them out of voting for this person who would not just harm you, caller personally, harm you and your boyfriend, your family, but harm the country and harm the world, which is what a Donald Trump presidency would do. And this is not what I'm telling you to do. I'm not encouraging you to take the coward's way out. My dad knows who I vote for and I know who he votes for. But at some point you have to perhaps print out or go get a coffee mug or a plaque for the wall with the serenity fucking prayer printed on it, which goes, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. My old dad is not something I'm going to be able to change. The people that he chooses to vote for, not something I'm going to be able to change. And I am wise enough to know that I can't make a difference there. So I don't waste my breath arguing with my father about who he votes for and neither should you. I waste my breath arguing with people who can be persuaded and someone who is a Fox News cable embedded in the back of their neck is not somebody you're going to be able to persuade not to vote for a Trump or a Cruz over a Hillary or a Bernie. So just don't. Serenity prayer this shit. If it makes you feel better – like a campaign contribution in your father's name to a Democratic candidate or to Planned Parenthood or to something else. And that can be your coward slash serenity prayer tax that you're willing to pay, the penance that you do to absolve yourself of whatever guilt you might feel for not going after your dad about this. Go home for Christmas and when the election comes up, not the election, the results of the election come up, change the fucking subject. 
Hi, Dan. Um, I'm a 30-year-old queer lady living in New York, and I have a question about reopening kinky play with a previous partner. So I used to be really active in the kink scene here, um, and most of the play that I enjoy is very penis-centric. So I like... Um, dressing up dicks in tiny costumes or CBT or basically anything from like pain and humiliation to admiration and worship, I guess, and um, flesh and silicone dicks, all kinds of dicks and play surrounding dicks. Um, anyway, a couple of years ago, I had this awesome casual play partner who I did a lot of this stuff with who I kind of saw around um, and saw publicly for the most part. And then um, I moved away for a few years and we lost touch. But I've been following them on social media. Uh, it was, she began using feminine pronouns and was documenting her hormonal transition. And now, so now I'm, I'm back and I've moved back and I'm going out to events again. And I would actually really love to play with her again, but um all the play I do is really focused on stuff objectifying dicks and <laughs> I don't really have any idea whether she's still down for this kind of play. So my question is, do you think it's as simple as just like approaching her and asking whether she's still interested in that kind of stuff or is that in itself an insulting or insensitive question in some way because it's so genital centric? Do you think I should just kind of forget it? I, I really used to like playing with her. I I I like cosplay regardless of gender. I would of course be sensitive to whatever vocabulary, et cetera, but I don't even know how to approach it. And I was wondering if maybe you or your listeners had any advice. As we've already mentioned on this week's show, genitalia can be a sensitive subject for a lot of trans people. And a lot of cis people are overly curious about trans people's genitalia, that there are instances where cis people are just completely obsessed with a trans person's genitalia and whether or not they've had bottom surgery and blah, blah, blah. And a lot of cis people in a lot of instances and in a lot of cases, even on television, shout out to Katie Couric, have asked trans people questions about their genitalia that they didn't really have a right to ask and that were insensitive. Maybe I should have lined up a trans guest for this week's show because this Transgenitalia issue is come up again, but here we are. The questions are coming in and we don't have a guess. So I'm going to have to field this one myself if I botch it. I apologize in advance. And of course, you are always welcome to call 206-302-2064 with your comments. So trans listeners, if you have better advice for this person or you think I got it wrong, call in and leave a comment and we will broadcast it. But here's what I have to say to this particular caller. Everyone is so worried and so concerned. So many people are, particularly socially aware and socially conscious people who want to do the right thing, so worried about saying something that someone might interpret as transphobic or saying something insensitive to a trans person that that trans person finds hurtful, which is, of course, subjective as hell, that people clam up. People are afraid to talk in many cases about trans issues and sometimes afraid to talk to trans people lest they say the wrong thing and be labeled transphobic forever or publicly shamed or attacked for being transphobic. 
And in this instance, in your case, caller, what do we got? We have somebody who was intimate with a person who later transitioned and desires to be intimate with that person again post-transition and you're hesitant to approach this person because you don't know what to say because you your fetish, your desires focus around dick and you don't know how this trans woman feels about dick or whether where she is in her transition, she has dick or intends to keep dick or feels conflicted about having dick. You can't know any of that. So you sit there frozen, afraid to say or do anything. And your trans playmate, previous playmate, she may be sitting there thinking because you guys are back in the same town and you haven't reached out to her that because she's trans, now you're not interested in her. And she may be reading rejection into your silence and transphobia into your silence. So for fear of saying something transphobic or saying something that might induce in her gender dysphoria, your trans fan may feel that you are being transphobic, but the silence is transphobic, not the question. Oh my God. So what do you do? This is just a case. It's a fascinating case because on the one hand, you have a lot of trans people who are, who feel rejected because a lot of cis people don't want to be with trans people, don't want to be intimate trans people. A lot of cis people have hangups about trans people, trans people's bodies. And here you are someone who has no hangups about that, but you're afraid to Approach this trans person about your desires and about the activities you used to engage in with her and whether she would want to engage in those again because – so you have a trans person who might not get laid because you have a cis person who's so afraid of offending a trans person. Ah, talk to her. I realize a lot of the advice ends with me saying talk to her but sometimes you got to game out how to say it. Sometimes you need a friend like me to help you game that out. Approach her and say, I don't know where you are with your transition. I don't know where you are with – how you feel about the activities you and I used to engage in together, which are still my favorite thing, which are all about dick and not about gender. And if you want to play some more, if you want to do the things we used to do, I'm still down if you're still down. And then it's up to her whether she wants to be with you in the way that she was with you in the past. Up to her. Mr. Savage, this is a 27-year-old huge fan of your show calling in. I am straight and dating an amazing 41-year-old guy, and he has a daughter. I'm facing a conundrum because every other aspect of our relationship is fantastic. The sex is the best that I've ever had, hands down. Not because he's huge or in any way kind of over-the-top like model hot or whatever, but to me... I just love his face, his smile, um, and, and the sex is wonderful because he loves making me feel good and vice versa. So I think it's the healthiest, happiest relationship that I've ever had. Here's the catch. He has these paintings in his house that he is currently decorating. And so he's currently decorating his house, and the paintings are of his ex. And he says that his friends made them for him and he doesn't see his ex in them and that really he just loves the colors of them. But let me tell you, they are boudoir paintings. They are her basically removing her bra and her lying sideways, like sort of on the ground in like a revealing, you know, manner. And I'm not a jealous person. I actually like that he's dated other people, and I have too. I've had tons of relationships, but having him stare at me from the wall in his living room when we want to go cuddle on the couch 
is a huge problem for me at this point. And what do I do? Um, I've heard in recent episodes that you're mentioning sex strikes. Should I really do that? Should I say, you know, well, I can't come over with those things staring at me? Um, I've been very explicit that I don't like them and that I don't think they're art because you can clearly tell that they were done for him. You know, he told me the story. I knew it was her, by the way. He says he doesn't see her in them, but I knew it was her even from not ever having met her. So I feel like it would cause so many issues in the future if I have, you know, if I if I feel like going over to his house if he's having a party or something, I would just feel so embarrassed as his lover to have those paintings on the wall. So am I overreacting? Uh, should I just forget about them and it's his house and, you know, should I just put up with them or should I put up a fight now? Because I would personally never do that to him. And I've told him that. The first thing that popped into my head as I listened to your question was, I really need to go watch Rebecca. It's been too long. 1940, brilliant, gothic, horror, thriller film. Not horror, just thriller. Starring Laurence Olivier, Olivia de Havilland. Laurence Olivier's character marries this woman, moves her into Manderley, his big, huge mansion where he lived with the first Mrs. de Winter. And there's all these mementos all over the house of his first wife who died tragically and giant oil paintings of her everywhere. And everyone who hasn't seen Rebecca, you might want to go watch that movie. Except you, caller. I think it would be very traumatizing. There's a difference between having a few mementos of a previous relationship or a previous marriage or maybe one photo hanging on the wall here or there, particularly when there's a kid involved. There's a difference between what you're asking your boyfriend to do and what some crazy controlling insecure nutbags are asking their boyfriends and girlfriends to do. The crazy insecure nutbags will dig through drawers, will open boxes, will look through photo albums high on shelves and find photographs or mementos or love letters from past relationships, past loves, ex-spouses and explode in a rage because all of those things have to be expunged. All of those memories, all of those mementos must be discarded because you're supposed to be the only one ever that mattered, the only one ever that this person had any feelings for and any evidence that your current boyfriend or girlfriend, husband or wife or non-binary friend or non-binary spouse had relationships in the past, had attachments in the past, had loves in the past is an affront. And I get questions from those kinds of people frequently or from people who are in relationships with those kinds of people. And I advise those people when they're foolish enough to write me that they're insane and they need to fuck the fuck off and stop being crazy about this shit. And I advise people in relationships with them to draw a line to say, you're nuts. Knock it off. Stop it. No, I'm not getting rid of these things because it's symptomatic of a larger ill when someone is that insecure and controlling. And where does that end if you don't stand up to it early in a relationship? It never ends. And all of us have passed, particularly in the days of serial monogamy and marriage and remarriage. And the person you're with now, talking now to the people who have a problem with a person who has mementos or love letters or photographs, the person you're with now was shaped and formed by all of the experiences they had up to the experience of meeting you and you fell in love with that person who was shaped by all of those experiences and you should be grateful to the people that they had relationships with in the past because it helped shape them into the person that you fell in love with. So stop being so fucking psychotic about it. But there's a difference I think between a few photographs, a few love letters, stuff tucked away in a drawer or a box, even a photograph on a wall somewhere. 
You know, when there are kids involved, kids who are a product of that past relationship, having a picture of mom and dad on the wall in dad's place and mom and dad on the wall in mom's place affirms that there isn't conflict between mom and dad necessarily about mom and dad existing and about that kid existing or those kids existing. So if you're with somebody who has kids from a previous relationship, you kind of have to honor that previous relationship because it's in the best interest of those kids. But there's a difference, I think, between those sorts of photographs, mementos, stuff tucked away discreetly on the corner and giant oil painting staring at you from every wall and whole houses being redecorated to incorporate these giant oil paintings. And you have a right as his partner, if indeed he's serious about you, if indeed you two are moving in together, if indeed this is not his house and his living space, but it is going to be a shared living space. It's going to be your house too. You have a right to ask him to not burn them, not get rid of them, not not display them anywhere necessarily, but to perhaps marginalize them in such a way where you don't have to see them in every room, particularly in the rooms where you spend most of your time. Does he have a man cave? Does he have an office? Is there a guest bedroom that you are rarely in? Is there a hallway that you don't have to walk down every day or that when you walk down it, you're not necessarily staring at the wall? Maybe the giant oil paintings of his ex-wife go there in one of those spaces that maybe there's a place for them, but not in a place of honor, not in a place where they are the focus because it creeps you out because they're bedroom paintings. Not just paintings of his ex-wife. They're not abstract. Not some Picasso shit, but some realistic-looking bedroom paintings. Some penthouse magazine shit. Done in oils to make it classy. You have a right to ask him to put them in storage, whether they're literally in storage, put away, can't be seen in crates, or storage figuratively, placed in areas of his house or his apartment where they're not the focus so that you can live there and be in that space without feeling like you have to stare into the face of his ex-wife 24-7. Hi, Dan. I am a cisgendered female living in Los Angeles, 28 years old. Well, I need your advice, really. Uh, I've been dating this guy for a couple of months now, and everything is really good. <laughs> and the sex is really good. Everything's great. Except, like, every time we're fooling around... He's going down on me, um, dirty talk. Basically, every time he says dirty talk, he, he talks about wanting me to squirch on him. He's like, oh, I want you to squirt all over my face. Like, it's like a thing that he says. And I have never squirted before. I get really wet after I come, but I don't squirt. And clearly, this guy has had a squirter. And I've been Googling it and trying to figure out if it's possible to train your body to squirt, but the internet is full of lies, and I just, you know, I don't know. I It's not working, and I feel a little squirt pressure now, like, giving me a little anxiety, and, like, I don't want to tell him, don't say that, it makes me feel bad that I can't do it, because what if it's just the act of saying, like, just saying that is a big turn-on for him, you know, so it's like, I don't want to take that away from him as well. So, I mean, I don't know. Can I train my body to squirt? And if so, how? I'm old enough to remember when women who did ejaculate, women who did squirt when they climaxed, were the ones who felt bad. And the world and things have changed. And now there's a lot of women rattling around out there who feel bad, who feel inadequate because they 
don't squirt because they can't squirt. And there are books out there that are written and there are videos online and dirty videos have been made to help women who want to squirt because it's what their men want from them or their women want from them to, to help them get there. Female ejaculation. I'm looking at Amazon right now. Female ejaculation, ultimate G-spot orgasm and ejaculation secrets, squirting the holistic guide to female pleasure and on and on. So we may have created accidentally sex positive folks who wanted to normalize female ejaculation or destigmatize female ejaculation. One more goddamn thing for women to feel inadequate and broken about. Most women don't ejaculate. A lot of women who don't ejaculate, who would like to ejaculate because they themselves would like to ejaculate or their partners would like them to ejaculate, who give it a shot, who try, who do everything that is unpacked for them in these books about it, are incapable of getting there. Not everybody who wants to do this can do this. So sounds like you gave it a try already. Sounds like you read the books, maybe watched a couple of the videos. Sounds like you tried to induce ejaculation, tried to learn how to squirt and you weren't able to do it. And so I would say to your boyfriend, I gave it my best effort. And so you got to shut the fuck up about this. I'm never going to squirt in your face. Most likely I will slack your face slowly with my vaginal secretions as you go down on me, but I'm not going to splash at you. And you talking about this every time we have sex makes me feel inadequate, makes me feel like I'm failing at being an orgasmic female. And you got to stop. You got to stop it. You got to drop it. You got to knock it off. If this is something that you have to have to feel sexually fulfilled and complete, I might not be the girl for you. But if this is something he can just enjoy once in a while, perhaps you could role play this with him occasionally. If this is something he can dial way the fuck back, it's no, you know it's something that he would like to experience. You know it's something that maybe in the past he has experienced. But he chooses you and not getting squirted in the face is a price of admission that he's willing to pay to be with you. Then you accept that. And then maybe you role play it every once in a great while. Like so many women out there who have husbands – or partners who are cuckold fetishists who don't want to sleep with other people, who want to be monogamous but will talk about it a little bit, will role play it every once in a while so long as it doesn't consume and take over their sex lives. So long as it doesn't become the only thing they talk about or the thing they must talk about in order for him to climax, to go there every once in a while in fantasy play, to go there every once in a while using dirty talk, that's meeting somebody's need. That's making an accommodation. That's being a good GGG partner. And so maybe you can go there every once in a while, but you got to tell him you tried to get there in reality and that ain't happening. And he can't hammer away at this every time you guys have sex because it's inconsiderate. He's not taking into consideration how it makes you feel. And you're calling me because you feel inadequate about it because you are desperate to do this for him and you've already tried and couldn't. So that's it that you need to tell him, knock it the fuck off. You can think it as loud as you want to think it in your own head at that moment if you need to think it, but you got to stop saying it, except on those occasions when I invite you to say it, except on those occasions when we together fantasize about it and dirty talk about it. But those are going to be occasional occasions, not every occasion. Hey, Dan, just looking for some advice. I've been with this girl about a year now. She's very reserved, very shy, uh, very unexperienced. It took me 
it took a, it took me a long time just for us to even get sexually active, like hanging out every day for like six months before stuff even started going down. She said that, you know, she told me like she'd never gave a blow job. She's 33 years old. She's only had sex with one guy. Um, and still, even though we've been together for a year, she still doesn't initiate nothing ever. Um, I kind of have to do all the work, I guess. But my question is, I'm pretty sure that she's never had an orgasm. Uh, I kind of asked her and she kind of told me no. So I kind of wanted to make sure it went down for her. So there's been a few times when I was going to work, either eating her pussy or playing with her pussy or just fucking her. And when it's about to happen, she kind of like squiggles out of it, closes her legs, pushes me away, um, and just doesn't let it go down. Like it's it's happened like five times now where. I'm like going at it, rubbing her clit, eating her pussy. And then like, I could tell it's about to happen. And then she just like closes her legs and like pushes me away. And then she's like, Oh, I feel like I'm going to pee on myself. And she just like, doesn't let it happen. So I don't know. I was kind of hoping maybe you could help me out a little bit to see how we can get past that point. Cause maybe if she experiences that orgasm, maybe it'll help. Thanks. First, get her a vibrator, hand it to her, and leave the room. Encourage her to masturbate. Encourage her to masturbate, not in your presence. Encourage her to have that first orgasm alone in a room with the door shut, even with the door locked, while you go for a walk or a bike ride so that she can feel not observed, not judged, where she can feel that whatever happens when she lets herself go, when she has that first orgasm, she's not going to offend, disappoint, uh, be embarrassed or humiliated in front of someone. As I've said a million times in the podcast, guys, boys often arrive at partnered sex having masturbated for years, experts in their own arousal patterns, knowing just what it is that their dicks need. And because of the slut shaming, because of the way the culture treats women and because of a complete lack of any acknowledgement or discussion of female masturbation – in a pop culture sense, just it's not acknowledged. It's not, it does, it's not as present. Way too many women arrive at partnered sex as young women or even adults, never having climax, never having masturbated. They don't know what their arousal patterns look like. They don't know what their plateaus feel like. They don't know exactly what it is that they need or exactly what it is that feels good. Some of the things you're doing when you think she's about to get there, maybe they're too intense. Maybe you're going too hard. Maybe you're pushing her too hard and she pulls away and tells you it's because she has to pee or whatever because it's not pleasurable. Allow, Give her some time and space. and Make it not about you. Give her some time and space to experience solo pleasure and give her affirmation and encouragement to experience solo pleasure and to masturbate by herself for herself and her own pleasure. Not by herself for you but for herself. That said, second bit of advice, this concern that she has – that she gets to this point, assuming that everything you're doing is working and it's pleasurable and you're getting her there almost, her fear that she's going to pee and she's going to wet herself, that she's going to piss, tell her to go for it. Literally, 
That's your fear. What's the worst that could happen? You're going to pee on me. Literally the worst that could happen is not actually that bad. Urine, it's sterile. It's not going to induce lifelong permanent urinary incontinence. It's not like if you start peeing because you have an orgasm, you'll never stop peeing. Maybe you will. Maybe your bladder will release when you have an orgasm. And so the fuck what? We'll put down a couple of extra blankets, a couple of extra towels. And if you get them wet, that's what washing machines are for. And let's prioritize your orgasm and your pleasure over perfectly dry sheets and towels. Once she knows that you're not going to freak out or be upset, if she indeed urinates all over you, even urinates in your face, maybe she'll be able to let herself go there. Her issue You can make it a non-issue, not just by giving her permission to masturbate solo and by herself for herself, an encouragement to do so, give her a vibrator, but by giving her encouragement, by giving her permission to go ahead and let happen that thing she fears might happen. And it only might happen. Who knows? Maybe it won't happen. But if it does happen, so what? And for you to say in advance, if that does happen, if you piss everywhere, good, Not that you're a piss freak, not that I love piss, honey, but you're not afraid of it. And there are worse things that could happen than her peeing all over you or all over the bed. And that's her never experiencing the intense and crashing pleasure of a full-blown orgasm, even if it means she pisses all over the place. Pee can be cleaned up. Don't ask me how I know. Hi, Dan. Um, I am a 27-year-old by cis lady living in New York City. So I have a history of uh, playing in the BDSM scene and, um, you know, in having, uh, you know, partners and I've, you know, identified as a sub for a while, which I'm only saying um, because playing with emotions and sex and orgasms is something that I um, have been used to, you know, having an emotion, having that fuel a different type of orgasm is something that I'm familiar with. However, I've noticed for a lot of my life that when I get very anxious, whether it be at work or over like a school assignment, I get really turned on and um, sometimes have to like stop working on whatever I'm doing that's making me anxious and like take care of, uh, you know, my situation and then like go back to like whatever it is because I can't concentrate. I've always felt that that was like my body's way of kind of stress relief, you know, like I'm really anxious. So like, you know, having an orgasm makes you less anxious. Um, however, about a week ago, I was at the airport airport with my boyfriend and it became very clear that we were going to miss our flight. And I was very anxious about this. We were waiting online to talk to a representative and I was freaking out. And I became so anxious that I actually came two times while I was standing in line at the airport um, without, like, I wasn't touching myself. Like, I wasn't touching my boyfriend. I was just standing in line, very quietly being, like, losing my cool, basically, and then came once, and then a couple seconds later, came again. Um, I haven't mentioned this to my boyfriend. I'm not particularly, like, I don't know. Like, I don't know if this is something that I want to explore or how I would go about exploring it or if this is even a thing. And since then, I've kind of tried to, like, 
think about like how I could even recreate this experience. There were pretty good orgasms, but like, I don't know. Like, I don't know if I can get myself anxious enough or want to get myself anxious enough to like do that again. Usually anxiety is something that I try to, uh, you know, combat in my life and like see a therapist for and not like, oh, let me lean in so I can have orgasms. Um, any thoughts you have about this would be great. Um, or if any, like if you know of people who engage in such activities, anxiety, orgasms, don't know. Joining me by phone to help answer this question, Dr. Debbie Herbenick, research scientist at Indiana University, sex educator at the Kinsey Institute, and author of Sex Made Easy, but also author of The Corgasm Workout, which is based on research that you did on exercise-induced arousal. Before we get to airline missing your flight-induced TSA-gasms, tell us a little bit about The Corgasm and The Corgasm Workout. Yeah, well, the corgasm is, you know, just as you said, there are orgasms that happen as a result of exercises and specifically exercises that really uh, sort of tax or challenge the core abdominal muscles. Um, We're still doing actually research with um, some other partners in Canada who specialize in uh, muscle mechanics and so on to try to understand, you know, how exactly this is happening. Um, But it's, it's just a fascinating phenomenon to me. So, um, they happen to both men and women. About 10% of women and men have had at least one um, orgasm from exercise, and uh, more women have had them frequently than men. Um, but to me, they're just kind of a fasting experience of orgasm, and we found through doing our research that there are ways you can exercise to enhance arousal, and so that's really what the book is about, about mm-hmm. uh, sort of like learning to work with your body in that way. So the sad 90% of us who've never had exercise-induced orgasms, I exercise pretty regularly. I have never had an exercise-induced orgasm. Is there hope for us? Can we learn how to have these exercise-induced orgasms? Would more people be in the gym if we could all learn how to do this? <laughs> you know, that that's a hopeful thing um, to me if more people would, would sort of work out and in ways that they want to. And I think more of us can. We don't know if, if everyone can. Um, there are plenty of people who are really fit and active and who have never, you know, never had an arousing or orgasmic experience. And for many people, that's fine. You know, not everyone wants to have that experience. Um, some people, in fact, you know, who do have it say, can you tell me how to stop? And so we actually have a, a section of the book that is about the, the little bit of information we know about how you can try to avoid it. Um, if it does happen to you. So, you know, it's it's just like everything else in sex. Like some people like it, some people don't. You know, the more I think about it, the less I like it. Now I'm happy to be a part of the 90% in this case, because if I had to walk around the gym with a boner all the time, that would be embarrassing. Okay, but there's no, there's no erection. What? That's the interesting part for men. I know. So this is the interesting part. Some of the men have an erection first, but most of them will go straight to ejaculation. Okay, well, I don't want to walk around the gym with wet pants or the big wet spot in my gym shorts. That's also why most most men really don't want to, you know, to do this. So even though there are men's and women's stories both in the book, the book itself is targeted toward women because that's actually, you know, for the most part, who says, can you teach me how to do this? We don't have, uh, you know, many men who say I'd like to learn this because of of course, the ejaculation aspect. Okay, so that's The Corgasm Workout. It's a terrific book by Debbie Herbenick and everybody who's curious about corgasms. And some of you listening have probably had them and didn't know that you weren't the only one, which I think is how you stumbled over this, right? You heard from people that this was a problem for or they were curious about this. Isn't that how you got into researching The Corgasm? Yeah, sort of. So I I had heard about it up here over a period of years um, when I was answering questions for folks and so on. And, you know, would always go back to the research. There was never anything on it. And, um, and I knew it was real actually, because when I was 
a young teenager and doing a lot of crunches, I would have like these funny feelings, but I never had the orgasm from it as a kid. Um, and I didn't know what an orgasm was anyway, but you know, when I started getting these questions from readers later on as an adult, when I was already doing sex research, you know, it just, it reminded me of that. And I was like, Oh, I wonder, you know, what would have happened if I had kept going, you know? And so, so I think that that early experience at least helped me like, uh, believe people who are writing in because a lot of people, even in sex research, when I started studying this would say, this doesn't happen. You know, people are making this up or mm -hmm. they don't know what an orgasm is. And you know, I hate that about, you know, about how some people approach sex, right? Like if they don't understand it, they just say, oh, it doesn't exist. They're liars. Um, and of course some people lie about some things, but not everything. That's the Corgasm so, yeah. Workout. Check out that book. That's about exercise-induced arousal, and for some folks, exercise-induced climax. So moving on, have you ever heard of missing your flight-induced arousal or TSA agent-induced climax? No, but that's not quite what this is, right? I mean, it's more <laughs> about stress and anxiety, although I'm sure there are people who get off on the TSA agent, you know, somewhere, someone. Yeah, if it exists in the world somewhere, someone is masturbating furiously about it right now. Um, I've never heard from anyone who's aroused by TSA agents, although I've encountered a few arousing ones in my time uh, in line at various airports all around the country. But this anxiety – OK, let's make it about anxiety. Anxiety-induced orgasms at Climax, is that a thing? Yes, absolutely. How does that work? So we're not entirely sure, but the closest thing it probably, this is what it probably is, is that when people get really anxious, really scared, it kicks in their fight or flight response, which would be activating the sympathetic nervous system. And we know that some people, especially women, um, when they have the SNS activated, that they seem to either have intense arousal or in some cases orgasm. And so, you know, so we know that, that both men and women have this. We actually think this might be part for some people of the corgasm experience too, because there's, there's ways that exercise can activate the sympathetic nervous system. And, um, and that some people, when they do kind of intense exercise and then go to core exercises, have, have these orgasms. And um, in some of our research, we have found people who will talk about um, like rushing to catch the bus, you know, and being afraid they were going to miss it. And with that anxiety, they then had an orgasm um, or, you know, it's fairly common to, to, I'm not like it happens to a lot of people, but I've had enough questions over the years from men who, um, you know, ejaculate when they're worried about um, speaking in public, like giving a work presentation or a school presentation um, or, you know, otherwise are doing something really scary, like taking an exam. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's what's working here. That's what happened. She also asks, how can I, incorporate this? How can I weaponize this, I guess, and make it always an orgasmic experience? If you have this sort of anxiety-induced orgasmic response, is that something you can intentionally manipulate or is that something you just have to enjoy as it comes? Because if you're intentionally trying to induce anxiety, really, can you? Can you be intentionally Possibly. late for your flight and climax? Possibly. So, so if it's coming from sympathetic nervous system arousal, then doing something like um, you know, walking or exercising at a moderate pace for 20 or 30 minutes might do it. Um, if it's this, this activation, it might even be that if she sort of slightly hyperventilates, mm -hmm. that it might kick that in too. So just sort of, you know, starts like breathing really quickly. But in, in saying that, of course, I think a lot of people's minds will go right to breast play. And of course, there's lots of different forms of breast play. Um, some of them really mild and safe and others not at all and, and pretty dangerous. So, mm -hmm. you know, certainly I would caution anyone, caution anyone listening to that to not jump to 
you know, dangerous forms of, of breath play. So, so what you mean by sympathetic nervous system response is there's physiological things, anxiety set in motion that lead to the climax. Your, your blood is yeah. pumping, you're getting short of breath, you're anxious and you become aroused. And it's sort of this parallel kind of bonus, your body fooling your genitals into this aroused state. Right. In the sense, and in fact, that's why, so, so there's actually a line of research and sex research saying, you know, maybe relaxation isn't good for all of us in terms of getting in the mood. It might help some people, but others might actually get in the mood when they have some state of, of kind of being on the edge a little bit. Uh Uh-huh. Being nervous, scared. Yeah. A a little bit. Yeah. Well, that seems obvious to me, you know, that so much of what people enjoy and not just, you know, so many kinks seem tied to, uh, not power exchange, which can be a, a little fearful, but also people talk about, you know, having sex in public and the risk of getting caught yep. and being naughty or doing something transgressive. And those all tap into anxieties around uh, discovery, anxieties around how you're perceived and the difference often between your public face and your private desires. And mm-hmm. anyone being able to to see, you know, the dirty person, the dirty bird you really are, that gets people's blood flowing. So aren't uh, you could you could argue that this woman isn't unique that a great many of us are aroused by anxiety just not necessarily at the airport right and also so even though a lot of people are aroused by anxiety i think it's fewer people that that have that sort of quick orgasmic response to it and i think that's what's a little bit you know for her what might set her apart from some other people is the anxiety alone might push her to a place of orgasm where it doesn't do that for you know, for large chunks of people, but she's not, she's not unique or alone in it either. You know, there certainly are others. Okay. Last question. And it's an ethical question. We're just going to pivot. Is she required to disclose to the TSA agents that they're making her come? No. Why? (laughs) I don't know. Just a question. You know, some people, I saw somewhere recently that somebody said that uh, someone with a foot fetishist who works in a shoe store is obligated to disclose that this turns them on to their boss and their employee and and their customers. I just wondered if the same applied here. You know, I I don't think so. Uh -uh. I mean, you know, she's going, she, she has to go through security at the airport. And in fact, if she said that, I'm sure in some places they, they might, you know, either give her a hard time or make life difficult for her. So no. And then she'd come again if they gave her a hard time about it. This incentivizes <laughs> maybe, disclosing. Maybe, maybe. Now she could be worried about that too. Worried about missing her flight. Worried about the reaction she'll get from the TSA agents when she tells them that she's actually climaxing in the x-ray <laughs> machine. She wins. It's a win-win maybe. for her on every way. Yeah, unless she becomes so fatigued that then she does miss her flight. <laughs> Dr. Debbie Herbetic, research scientist at Indiana University, sex educator at the Kinsey Institute, author of Sex Made Easy and The Corgasm Workout and other books. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone. It's always such a pleasure to talk to you. Nice talking to you too. Hi, Dan. I'm a carpenter calling from Canada, and I had a question about homoerotic joking between straight men. Um, as you can probably imagine, I work around mostly men, some of them are about my age, I'm in my mid-twenties, and they just joke all day with each other about their penises and their buttholes and coming on things, and they just find it the biggest hoot, and I'm just wondering what that's all about, and also wondering how I can play along with this, or join in, or should I just remain in the background quietly, I don't know. Because sometimes they, they joke with me, 
but it's different when you joke about your breasts or your vagina or whatever. I've tried that and they get all like, whoa, my God. So I'm just wondering, what's the deal? What do I do? It doesn't sound like they're joking around about their own genitals, the the guys at work. Doesn't sound like it bothers you. Doesn't sound like it makes you feel unsafe. Doesn't sound like that from your question, it doesn't sound like you feel that this creates an unsafe work environment for you or this is sexist of them or you're being harassed. It sounds like you just want to be able to join in and be as jokey and matter of fact about your own body as these dudes at work are about theirs. And so I would encourage you just to join the fuck in until they get the fuck over it. Let them have their, whoa, my gods. Because on some level, what's happening in that moment is you are reminding them that you are there and that you are a woman and you are doing the same job that they're doing as men. And I think part of the, oh my God, is being reminded of that in the moment, that they're not intentionally harassing you. But on some level, what they're saying with those, oh my gods is, oh my God, we're being reminded that the job that we do and the way that we do it, that job can be done by women and that women can have the same sort of sense of humor that we have and that women have bodies that do things just as we have bodies that do things. And it's hilarious because presumably these guys are probably all straight and you would expect that they would be down with women's bodies. But then look at Donald Trump freaking out because Hillary Clinton had to go to the bathroom and thinking that was so disgusting because going to the bathroom isn't something that women do. Well, carpentry for a long time wasn't something that women did, not because women couldn't do it, but because women weren't allowed to do it. Wasn't ladylike. Joking about your own body also, something women weren't allowed to do or expected to do. And these guys at work, they've gotten used to you being a carpenter, being a colleague, being a coworker, and accepted that you can do the job. And now they just have to get used to women being able to have a sense of humor also about their bodies. And women's bodies existing in the same spaces where their bodies exist. And not just the carpentry space, but the humor space. So go for it. Make the jokes. Let them have their little freakouts. And when they have their little freakouts, you can then turn around. And when they start making jokes about their own bodies, have a mocking freakout of your own. Make fun of the way that they freaked out at you when you made a joke about your pussy or your tits. When they start going off about their assholes or their dicks. Give as good as you're getting. Hi, Dan. This is a late 20s straight woman calling from the West Coast, and I have a question about planning a wedding. My fiancé, who is great, by the way, and I are getting married in Colorado, where we are from next summer. I was in a friend's wedding last fall, and I really liked her wedding photographers. They were super funny and nice, and her photos were gorgeous. Here's the problem. In setting up a meeting with the photographers and reading the bios on, the web- on their website, It looks like they're pretty Christian. Like it says, blah, 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 enjoys hiking, drinking coffee, and Jesus. And when I emailed them about scheduling a meeting, they were working around their church schedule. My friend whose wedding I was in was also very religious. My fiance and I are not religious in any way, and our wedding won't be either. We'll have friends of varying sexual orientations celebrating with us. and My fiance's aunt and her partner will be there who are very special to us. Am I crazy for being hesitant about hiring these photographers just based on the information that they are really religious? I mean, I know that not all Christians are super intolerant and hate gay people. Should I ask them about this? Should I ask all of my wedding vendors these questions? 
I just don't want them to say mean things to people or sabotage my wedding photos because they don't approve or something. Am I being a total asshole who's buying into stereotypes? I don't know. Help. I think you have a right to ask these photographers whether they would have a problem taking photos at your wedding, knowing that there will be gay people at the wedding and a part of the wedding and gay couples at the wedding that you're going to want pictures of and that you won't want treated badly. Not because all Christians are anti-gay bigots, but because so many Christian anti-gay bigots are out there insisting that all Christians are anti-gay bigots and that we need laws that allow for Christians, particularly Christian wedding photographers and bakers, who knew, to discriminate against LGBT couples. Bakers, florists, photographers, these are the people that right-wing anti-queer, anti-gay, anti-marriage equality Republicans constantly invoke when they push for what are called religious freedom restoration acts, basically enormous carve-outs that would legalize discrimination against LGBT people, but also cohabiting heterosexuals, single parents, all sorts of other people based on some individual Christians' supposed sincerely and deeply held religious beliefs. So it is not irrational of you to conclude it's not irrational for people to assume or to be concerned about a self-identified Christian photographer having a problem taking photos at a wedding where there are queer couples, even if it's not a queer couple, getting married at that wedding. And if Christian photographers have a right to discriminate against gay couples, all couples who are not hateful and discriminatory, whether they be same-sex or opposite-sex, have a right, indeed, I would argue, a responsibility not to patronize bakers, florists, wedding photographers who would discriminate. You wouldn't want to hire a photographer who would refuse to take pictures of your aunt and her partner at their wedding or refuse to take pictures of your aunt and her partner together, clearly as a couple, at your wedding. And the reason you're inquiring, the only reason you're asking is not because you just blindly and for no reason assume that someone who's a Christian is an anti-gay bigot, but because there are so many high-profile politicized Christian organizations and supposedly Christian Republicans out there insisting that Christian is synonymous with homophobe. This is what 40 years of the American Family Association, the Family Research Council, the defunct moral majority – have achieved. They have succeeded in making Christian synonymous with homophobic. And if these Christians that you contact, these Christian photographers that you would like to employ, if they're offended by the question, point out that you aren't to blame. That it's not your fault that you're asking this question. It is the fault of the Tony Perkinses of the world and the Brian Fishers of the world and the Ted Cruz's of the world, that you were in a position where you felt you had to ask this question. They're the ones out there insisting that Christian photographers have to be protected from marauding same-sex couples that wish to write them checks. And you, even though you're heterosexual, even though you're marrying an opposite partner, you don't want to employ someone. You don't want to give your money to someone who wouldn't want to take pictures at your wedding knowing that you were pro-queer and knowing that you would have gay guests and you wouldn't want people there on your special day who made people who were special to you feel uncomfortable or excluded. So ask that question. You have a right to ask it. Hi, Dan. 27-year-old cis 
straight female calling about a breakup that I just had. Uh, it kind of was a shock because we had been together for a year and um, basically a year to the day, uh, well, like two weeks, I all of a sudden started learning all these things that he had been hiding or lying to me about. And it was like things that he lied about in the beginning of our relationship, things that he lied about about his marriage, which he had been in for eight years previously uh, before meeting me. And then um, we tried to work through it, tried to build up trust. And then I uh, read his journal um, because I felt like there's just something either I could like get confirmation or that I would learn something that my gut was telling me was there. And I know uh, I've heard that you say that uh, snoopers get what they deserve and that being um, having this like wonderful relationship end because of what I found is probably my fault. Um, but I found that he um, has this like really weird way that he like thinks about women. Like he very much thinks of them as objects to be attained. And I learned that he secretly like records or spies on like his neighbors or people who stay with him. Um, like I, and I, I don't know how many times he did it or like how, what he did with those recordings, but it was like very much for him to like, you know, cause he like wanted to get off to it and, um, definitely not consenting. And so, um, my question for you is, uh, if I really did get what I deserved by snooping and if maybe this is something that I shouldn't have broken up with him over because maybe he, um, was working on it or maybe this is something that, uh, we could like get past. Um, but I just can't, I don't know. I can't see him the same way that I used to, um, yeah, so am I partially at fault here for this shocking relationship, the good relationship? It was really good ending. Um, and yeah, did I get what I deserve? I have a more nuanced position on snooping than you're giving me credit for. I don't think it's always wrong in all cases. The problem with snooping is that you only find out whether it was justified or not retroactively. It's case-specific and whether or not you had a right to snoop or needed to snoop is determined largely by what the fuck you find when you're snooping. As I wrote in a recent column, when we snoop, we sometimes find out things we don't want to know, don't need to know, and don't really need to do anything about. For example, the new boyfriend has a few sex from an ex tucked away on his computer. Your dad is cheating on his third wife. Your adult daughter is selling her used panties online. You didn't need to know any of that. You really don't need to do anything about that, but it might bother you to know that. And the snooping in those cases didn't benefit you at all, and it can't really be justified retroactively. But sometimes, returning to the column now, we find out things we needed to know and have to do something about. For example, your 14-year-old daughter is planning to meet up with a 35-year-old man she met on Instagram. Your quote-unquote straight boyfriend is having unsafe sex with dozens of men behind your back. Your spouse is planning to vote for Ted Cruz. In those cases, you have to intervene, break up, and file for civil commitment, respectively. In your case, caller, you found out something disturbing, something that proved to you that this person you thought you were dating isn't the person that he presented himself to you as. He isn't a nice and good and loving and lovable guy. He's a creepy, misogynist asshole and kind of a sex predator, perhaps even a sex criminal based on the laws in your state about surreptitiously filming people. 
and you're well rid of this guy. Better to find these things out early in the relationship, before you were living together, before you got married, before you scrambled your DNA together with his and had a kid, than to find it out after all of those things had happened. So dry your tears. You have dodged a big, fat, ugly bullet. And you ask, what if he was working on it? Maybe he was working on it. You read his journal. If he was working on it, it would have been there in his goddamn journal. It wasn't. Therefore, Occam's razor, he wasn't. He wasn't working on it. I'm not going to say you did the right thing by snooping, but based on what you found, you did the right thing by dumping this asshole. Yeah. Hi, Dan. I'm a uh, 40-ish straight white male. I'm married uh, to a lovely lady. This is actually my second marriage, and that's kind of what I'm calling about. Um, The first one was kind of a bad scene to start with. For various reasons, it fell apart. Um, And it's actually, it ended almost 10 years ago, and it's only recently that I realized after reading a checklist on somebody's Facebook page that it wasn't just bad, and I knew it was bad. Uh, It was actually abusive. And the stuff that I thought was just her being awful was sort of revealed as not just awful, but manipulative and, you know, emotional blackmail. And these weird arguments that we had that I didn't really understand, that I came out of not really knowing what I thought to start with, I finally read an article about gaslighting, and that's what it was. And since I'm out of it now, it wouldn't be a big deal, except that after all that, after seven years with her, she left a lot of shit in my head. And the woman I'm married to now and I, we, we just moved to a new place and she's got new friends and I'm finding that all this shit is kind of bubbling up in my head and I'm jealous and I don't trust her. And I know that, you know, nothing's going on because she says it and I believe her. But on the other hand, I was treated so poorly before uh, and for a long time that it's hard for me to, to believe this, I guess. And I don't know. I've went, I've gone and looked for support groups on the internet, but it seems like when I look for support for abused men, I end up in men's rights awareness groups. And that's basically the worst thing ever. So um, do you have any pointers or advice? I don't really want to go to straight up one-on-one counseling, but having like a support group would be pretty great. And maybe you know a group. Gaslighting, for those of you who may not know, and I'm just going to read straight off wiki here, is a form of mental abuse in which information is twisted or spun, selectively omitted to favor the abuser, or false information is presented with the intent of making victims doubt their own memory, perception, and sanity. All right, caller, we're not going to let your abusive ex-wife destroy your relationship with your new wife. And if a support group is hard to find, some one-on-one counseling is called for and is also probably your quickest route to a support group online or face-to-face in your own area. Most services out there for people who've been in abused relationships are targeted at 
women because women are much, much more likely to be in an abusive relationship. Men are much, much more likely to be abusers. And women are also much more likely to reach out and seek advice, support, therapy, counseling, much likely to reach out to their friends. Men have this burden of having to keep their shit together all by themselves and be stoic. And it's stigmatized. So that leaves in the online space often room just for MRAs, men rights activists to swoop in and scoop up guys like you who are not looking for sexism and bullshit, but looking for support and understanding. You can find it though. And again, the quickest way for you to find it is go get yourself a therapist who's going to be able to plug you into services in your area for people who've been in abusive mentally or physically abusive relationships. But let's address quickly the shit that's bubbling up in your head. You're in a new area, your wife is making some new friends, and you're jealous and you find yourself not trusting her. That is something to talk to your wife about. And hopefully your wife is familiar with your history of abuse and is sensitive to it and is willing to make some accommodations around not not having friends. You're not asking her not to have friends, not to make new friends, but just to offer you reassurances based on your history of abuse in your previous relationship to accommodate your insecurities by communicating with you effectively, not to accommodate your insecurities by cutting herself off from support that she needs or the friendships that she wishes to enter. All that said, let's talk about for a brief second the worst that could possibly happen, right? When Around jealousy, usually what people frame as the worst that could possibly happen is cheating. She might cheat on you and that might fucking happen. You shouldn't be in a relationship with anyone if cheating, if being cheated on is literally the worst thing you could imagine happening to you over the course of your life because the stats show that most of us in long-term, long, long-term relationship, most of us who are in monogamous, sexually exclusive, long, long, long-term relationships at some point or another are going to cheat or be cheated on. Statistically, it is a probability So rather than sitting there in a defensive crouch, rather than tensing up about how awful it's going to be if this thing that might happen should happen, think about your relationship and think about everything it brings to the table besides your spouse not touching anyone else with their genitals ever again over the course of your lives together and tell yourself that all the other things that your relationship is about are valuable and have weight and even if you two don't get the monogamy fucking first place award at the end of your relationship that it doesn't have to destroy a relationship. A judge on a case-by-case basis, routine, not scalding, not epically devastating betrayal may not be something that's as awful as you've been led to believe that it is. It may be something that you will never find out about or if you find out about, you can move past and forgive. And that should be our default setting in long-term relationships. That if this awful, awful thing happens – If somebody violates the monogamous commitment that they made to us, that this is something that can be got past, that the relationship and our own mental health and our own ability to trust our partner going forward, all of that can survive that, depending. As I like to say, your husband fucked your sister on your wedding night. Probably can't get past that. Your wife messed around with somebody on a business trip 25 years into your relationship and it was just that one time – Maybe that's something you can get past if you must, if you need to, if that ever comes to pass. So go get yourself a therapist, find your way into a support group and tell yourself that the thing that you fear most is something that doesn't have to destroy you 
destroy your mental health, destroy your relationship, or end your second marriage. In regard to the wife who's uncomfortable receiving oral sex from her husband, I feel the exact opposite. I think that rather than having her be blindfolded, she should blindfold him. Because if she's feeling self-conscious, part of it is that he is that up close and personal and seeing her private parts. If he's blindfolded, he's not seeing anything. She knows he's not seeing anything, and she can feel free to relax and receive. What I would also recommend before that even happens is for her to put on a pair of yoga pants or tights and just relax on the couch with his face between her legs, but she's completely covered up. So she just gets that idea, that feeling of this is what it feels like to have my husband's head between my legs. And then once she's used to that, she can take those off, blindfold him, and it might turn into a treat rather than something that she's uncomfortable with. Hey, Dan, I just had a comment for the woman who was not excited about making out with this new guy with the long mustache. And I know this may sound silly, but it just occurred to me, couldn't she ask him to sort of pin it back, like get some barrettes and sort of pin it to the sides of his beards or his, you know, sideburns? I, I totally am serious here. I feel like that might work. And if he's really connected to his facial hair, he wouldn't have to cut it off. Hi, it's fan of Dan here. Uh, reply for the woman from episode 490, whose partner has eight-year-long beard and mustache that end up in her mouth. I got two suggestions uh, for her. If she just tells him directly and he gets offended, it's a perfect test so she can see his ego size and attachment to his beard. So she could easily imagine other hellish stuff in the future that his ego could provoke. Or if she wants to do it uh, in a quirky way, she could just buy a long fake mustache and ask him to kiss her so he sees how unsexy it is while someone's mustache flosses your teeth. You can call it flustache. Hey, Dan, I just had a quick comment about the um, Abby and Alana comment regarding uh, queer roles and straight roles about sharing partners, sexually and otherwise. My best friend and I are both on OkCupid, and we regularly share folks that we think would be awesome for each other. Um, and I think it's really just about deciding that you're not going to follow all these archaic rules that don't mean anything at all. Um, and it's because awesome shows like Broad City that really inspire us and uh, keep us going. All right, we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Dr. Debbie Herbenick on Twitter at Debbie Herbenick. Hump, America's best dirty little film festival, is playing in Los Angeles right now. It continues at the Downtown Independent on Friday, March 25th and Saturday, March 26th. Go to humpfilmfest.com for more information about showtimes and to buy tickets. We're also coming to Long Beach, to Madison, to Montreal, to Columbus, to Providence, to Washington, to Ann Arbor and other cities. All of them listed again at humpfilmfest.com. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian of the Hairless Legs and me and Nancy and the Tech Savvy at Rescue who will all be back at you next week with another installment of Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.